0: Love Talk Radio.
1: Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted O'Dorico, and glad you could make it this evening. Um, This is going to be, as I've uh, mentioned over the last day or so, this is going to be the last show for uh, 2016. I'm going to be winding down uh, for the holidays uh, coming up in just a few weeks, and then we'll start the show back up in January. But thank you for joining me live uh, this Thursday, December 8th. And uh, as I've always mentioned on the shows at the beginning, uh, I've got a great show for you. I've got uh, two of uh, two of my favorites that come on the Coach's Corner panel, uh, John Hughes and Pete Buchanan, who I'll bring on here in just a moment. And uh, a little bit later in the show, I'm going to be joined by Byron Casper. Uh, Brandon Stooksbury was going to be joining me the second half of the show as well, but unfortunately, uh, some something came up last minute, so he's not going to be on the show uh, this evening, but uh, Byron Casper and... Possibly another gentleman is going to be joining us a little bit later on, so uh, make sure you stay tuned for, for the second half of the, the uh, broadcast tonight. Um, but uh, as always, we're live uh, Thursdays, unless otherwise stated, from 6 to 8 p.m. Central, and that's 7 to 9 uh, Eastern time for those of you on the East Coast. And the uh, quickest way to, to find the show is to go to blogtalkradio.com and uh, type up in the search key Golf Talk Live, and that will take you to the live broadcast on Thursdays. And for some reason, if you can't join us live uh, just go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash golftalklive and just scroll down and uh, you will see the uh, on-demand section, and that has all of the uh, shows, of course, that are archived and recorded previously. So um, you can get us either way, live or, or the archived version, whatever works uh, for your Uh, convenience and don't forget to go to stitcher.com or itunes.com it's also available on those two networks as well as podcasts so uh, make sure that you do that always would love to hear from you guys and get some feedback during the live broadcast the number to call in is area code 646-716-4667 or you can email questions or comments to me personally at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com and of course i update on all social media uh facebook of course the, the show is updated every week on that as well as Twitter, uh, Twitter, sorry, my Twitter handle is Ted and Buck, uh, CEO and CEO, of course, is in capital letters. Uh, but again, thank you for joining me live tonight. And we're going to have, uh, because it's the last show of the year, we're going to kind of have some light conversation. We're going to talk about a few uh, key things that I want to bring to the guys' attention. But uh, let, me, uh, let me introduce uh, my, my two good friends that are coming on the show tonight, uh, starting off with John Hughes. Of course, he's a PGA Master Professional uh, here in the Florida area, and uh, he's also the Vice President of the North Florida PGA Section. And he was the recipient of the 2013 PG of America Horton Smith Award. And he's also uh, ranked in one of the, as one of the top 30 instructors uh, in Golf Tips magazine. So make sure you check him out there as well. Uh, and also uh, joining uh, the panel is uh, on Coach's Corner tonight is Pete Buchanan. He's been on, a, on the show many, many times as well and one of my favorites. Uh, he's the founder and director of instruction at, and owner of Plain Simple Golf llc which uh, of course we've mentioned before houses the plain simple golf circuit and simple swing repeater training uh, brace and he's got uh well over 30 years of teaching experience as well and uh we're going to talk to you tonight and see if we can help a few of you last minute uh, golfers before you wind up for the end of the season um guys welcome to the show
2: great to thanks be here thanks.
1: all right appreciate it um and, and as always guys uh, I, know, I know we're getting ready to to Jump into the holidays here in just a few weeks, so and everybody's uh, got Christmas on their mind and and uh, trying to get some last minute uh, things ready for that, and and uh, obviously we've got other projects that we're trying to get finished off before the year closes out as well. So I know everybody's uh, busy, and as I've said many times before, guys, I really appreciate you guys uh, giving of your time and coming on here. Uh, I know it's not always easy. Um, I, I want to ask just uh, just a few questions, and then we'll we'll kind of just have some light conversation tonight, as I said uh, on the panel discussion, but. Uh, and, and Pete, I'm going to start with you, if you don't mind. Uh, I want to oh, wow. kind of get into the, I guess, the heads of, of, of golfers, if you will, and whether they're playing a club championship or whether they're a little bit more uh, assertive and, and maybe playing on a mini tour somewhere. Um, what's what's a player's mindset, do you think, coming into a tournament? What are most players thinking about when they're coming in? Obviously, they want to win. Um, but what's some of the things that they do mentally to prepare for an upcoming tournament, and what uh, what should they for some of our amateur golfers maybe playing in their club championship? What are some things that uh, that they might want to uh, think about before they you know, as they're getting ready for the tournament?
2: Well, I think first and foremost, I'm I'm pretty sure they're hopeful they're going to play well. Um, I think sure. everybody looks forward to, to playing well in a tournament. Um, I would hope that the, the golf course they're playing, they've had a chance to look at it, they've had a chance to go through the holes and set forth a game plan as to, you know, how they're going to play it, uh, know where their strengths and weaknesses fit the different holes that they're going to play, um, understanding their game as they're coming into it, you know, what shots they're performing well, which shots they're not performing well. And I always tell the guys, I don't want you to play negative golf, but, you know, there's if there's a shot you're not performing very well and you can avoid it, just avoid it. Um, you know, we always try to get all the shots going, but, you know, different times of the year you play different but just a good positive mental outlook, a, a way to look at uh, you know the golf course in its entirety and how you're going to play. Um, you know, I, I always think a game plan is always the best way to do it, and then just making sure that you know as you've led up to it that you've prepared, you've you practice you know a lot of the short shots, um, those are under control, you know what's going on, and, and above all, just making sure that you're going in with a you know a good positive attitude and, and looking forward to. Going in and putting on a good show.
1: Well said, um, John. Let me just ask this and, and just reframe it just a little bit different, uh, or, or maybe just one sided for a second, and then and then I'll let you uh, answer in, in its entirety. But um, I want to focus on particularly some of the, those that maybe play in their their uh, their local club championship. You know, they're they're playing their course fairly regularly, so they they know that the course conditions and that. Uh, if you were working with a, a member of a club. Uh, and they came to you john and said okay you know i've got the, the club championship coming up in a, in a month or so's time you know i could really use some help refining my game and that what advice would you give them based on on my earlier question and what would you do to help them prepare for that uh, for that championship
3: well it's no different for the average person versus the professional player or the one person aspiring to be a tour player the difference uh, and how you prep is the time commitment involved. What Pete said, I'd probably take everything that he's saying and just put it into the context of, of what the average person could do within a time frame. Coming a month ahead of time, so long as you're committing some days each week prior to that club championship or the member member or whatever it happens to be, you're you're well ahead of the ball game so long as you're staying mentioned. Uh, a lot of on-course, believe it or not, the, most people want to fix their swing, become better ball right. strikers, and it's it's not necessarily the case based on the amount of time you have versus say an aspiring tour professional. That's what they do for a living, eight hours a day, so they've got more time to make swing changes. Where the average person, if you worked more on your short game from a te- technical standpoint of view. From a simulated standpoint of view, with practice rounds, games you could play at the practice facility, playing morphise rounds, just making smarter decisions based on what your capabilities are. Uh, most likely you're gonna play at the same relevant level that a aspiring tour player would. the difference being that time commitment, yours is yours and theirs is basically just swap jobs and and that's really the difference uh they're doing it for a living you're not
1: right uh well said as uh, again uh john thank you um just to sort of keep on this theme for just a second i want to i want to ask uh i guess sort of a follow-up question um is there a particular area of you know is it maybe a good idea for them to focus on again like john as you just pointed out. You're not going to want to incorporate, uh, especially when you maybe only got a month out from from that championship. Uh, incorporate any major swing changes or things like that. You know, even if they are having some difficulties in a certain area, because you don't want to mess them up before they go in there. But um, is it a good idea for them to maybe really focus on their strengths? If they're maybe a good short game player, or uh, you know, are, are able to um, you know put the ball in, in play a lot of the times, is it is it better for them to focus on their strengths? and worry about the changes maybe after the, the tournament. Um, what do you think about that? And that, John, I'm going to let you go on that.
3: Well, obviously, you always try to play to your strengths, regardless of your skill level. Your strengths are only as good as those things you're average at. and The things you're average at are only as good as the things that you're going to be somewhat deficient with. So it's maintaining the strengths, really, as you're prepping. It's all about maintaining those what a lot of people do is focus so much on a deficiency that they forget about the things they're average with and they just assume that what they're good at will just stay there, they, but they don't take the time to maintain it. So it's a balancing act. It's, it's somewhat simple for some, not so simple for others. Uh, but so long as you're maintaining that balance of, hey, here's my strength, I know what it is and I'm playing to it, and you're just trying to bring the deficiencies up a little bit maintain the average things you do, those little puzzle pieces fit in together nicely. You're going to have a good tournament so long as you're making good decisions. Uh, When you focus too hard, especially with not a whole lot of time involved, to make a swing change, as Pete could attest, uh, there's probably players he and I both work with on an individual basis that even with six, eight hours a day of committed time, it takes three, four, five, sometimes six weeks for this swing change, quote-unquote, to repeat itself in the heat of battle. And that's truly the case. It's not about fixing it. It's got to be time-tested, warrior-tested. So when you're in that heat of the moment, it's going to repeat for you.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I agree exactly with with that. Um, Pete, let me ask you something, and again, uh, sort of staying on the steam for a second yeah this past weekend of course we we watched uh tiger come back uh in in uh, in his tournament in the bahamas and uh you know a little slow to the gate on the first round but but came back and, and shot a 65 uh and then i believe a 70 and i didn't get the fi- the final round so i'm not sure but i know he was he was uh you know certainly up in the leaderboard uh you know throughout the tournament uh, considering this is really his first main tournament that he's back in been back in uh, and playing for a while um, if you were to sort of, and I know it's difficult we can't get into Tiger's head but what do you think that is going through his head at this point knowing that he has not been playing for for uh, at least 15 six, what 16 months uh, competitive golf what do you think is going through his head at this point what do you think he's he's focusing on uh, or what in your opinion do you think he should be focusing on
2: well, if I know Tiger, he was probably trying to win. I mean, that's the way he is. I mean, sure. he isn't going to anything unless he thinks he can win it. Um, but, you know, he made 24 birdies. If I'm not mistaken, he led the, led the tournament in the number of birdies. So, you right. know, his ability to make shots and, and make putts is still in there. Well, the only problem is I think he made four doubles. So that doesn't help. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I think his mindset was probably, you know, I'm I'm just glad to be back out here. I mean, he made it one quick, when they asked him what his goal was, he said he wanted to break into the top 1,000, which I thought was hilarious, Um, you know, in the rankings. So, But, no, I think he he probably had the exact mindset that he needed. I mean, if there's nobody, uh, maybe aside from Nicholas, that's more mentally prepared to play golf than Tiger is. So I'm sure, based on what he was doing, uh, based on knowing his game, uh, I'm sure he came in with the expectation to play as well as possible um, and knowing that, you know, there's going to be some rust that needs to be knocked off. You know, it's different when you're, when you're up and playing four days in a row in that atmosphere. But um, you know, I, I think anything different, you know, it's, it would be hard to, to, to double guess Tiger Woods, you know, um, yeah. he's, he's been at the top and he knows himself better than anybody. Um, I know that looking on some of the, the Facebook stuff. Everybody's, you know, tearing his swing upside down and sideways, trying to see sure. how they'd make it better. But um, you know, that just comes with the territory. But um, you know, he made a ton of birdies. So um, yeah. I, if I was the rest of the guys out there, I'd be, I'd be saying, "Oh, look out! Here he comes."
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And, and John, what about you? What, what was your thought? I mean, I, I certainly I didn't get to see the whole tournament, but I did watch uh, a good amount of it. And and I'll have to be honest, I of all the times that, and, and when I say came back, uh, cause you know, Tiger has certainly, um, made a number of attempts over the last several years of, you know, getting back into competitive golf and he would, you know, kind of get in there, but just, you know, ran into some issues with his back and so forth. But I, I had to be honest, I was actually very impressed with his play, uh, this past weekend. I thought uh, he looked really good. And, and, and as Pete pointed, you know, it's to be expected. he's going to knock some of the rust off. It's been a while since he's played, uh, you know, competitive tournament golf, uh, at this level, and uh, by his own admission, you know, he, he realized it's going to be a journey getting back on, but I, I think he looked good out there, and, uh, and as Pete just pointed out, uh, I also agree, I think that, uh, you know, the other players are going to say, well, let's let's see what's going to happen, but yeah, look out. What were your thoughts, say, uh, if you had a chance to watch uh, much of the tournament uh, with Tigers I I come back here?
3: I didn't get to watch much of it. Uh, I was mainly highlighting and news reels and that type of thing due to other commitments, but uh, a couple of things that came to my mind was a fifteen sixteen months off, hopefully he is well healed and it certainly mm-hmm. looked like it was uh, and that makes a big difference in anyone 's performance i don 't care what sport it is, even chess if you 're well healed you 're going to make good moves in chess. Uh, He is a chess player on the golf course, and we did see that. Uh, The rust, those are the bogeys, the double bogeys that Pete was mentioning. But I think the real interesting thing was how he's gone about re-entering the game is the way I'm going to phrase it. It's very similar to how we enter the game. Let's just play some tournaments that are uh, very friendly to my game as far as the course goes, very friendly as far as the field Uh, let me build a little bit of confidence in what I'm doing and let's get the game back to where it was and and take a very logical, very strategic approach to it. It it wasn't, it's just not, uh, hey, he played four good rounds and he scored and made 24 birdies. I, I think this is part of the overall plan, similar to him in the late 90s joining the tour Uh, It was very strategic. He was on a fast track then and was 20-plus years younger. Uh, So taking that into consideration, I think what you saw was his preparation to get back into Augusta. uh, If he gets some uh, sponsor exempts or or tournament exempts into the other majors and some of the other big uh, tournaments through the various ways that he has, I think that's what you're seeing. Honestly, it's one thing to perform. But, as Pete said, he's there to win. I don't doubt he was there to win this week, but I think he's got sure. his eyes set on bigger prizes.
1: yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. you know it what was kind of in, and just a final note on tiger and then and then we'll we'll move on what was kind of interesting, and I was really surprised to hear this but uh and I don't recall the the announcer that that said this, but they and I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but they made the comment that um to be honest that they were kind of tired of, of a lot of the critics and Pete, you'd mentioned about, you know, obviously everybody on Facebook and other social media, uh, you know, going on the swing and, and other areas of, of Tiger's game. But um, this particular announcer actually came right out during, um, uh, during the tournament and made the comment about, you know, a lot of the critics needed to kind of just, you know, move on and, and kind of get over it. And, and I have to agree with that. You know, I, it's always great to see a player do well and, and players uh, sometimes uh, for whatever reason, whether it's because of personal issues or, or physical issues, um, you know, struggle with their game or, or have, uh, you know, have to, to step away from the game, if you will, for a while. And obviously Tiger's had to do that um, for a multitude of reasons, but um, I'm just glad to see for one, I'm glad to see him back. Uh, you know, I hope he does well and uh, you know, whether he, you know, Beats at this point whether he beats Nicholas's, uh, you know, uh, record of majors or, or just gets out there and has some fun and and gives it his best. Uh, I'm happy for him. I hope he does well and I think he will. Um, and, and and unless either one of you have another comment or two, um, we'll, we'll move on. Okay.
2: Well, just with that, I mean, it, watching some of the telecast, I mean, he was having fun out there. He was laughing and horsing yeah. around with the guys, you know, and that's a totally different. You know, uh, Tiger Woods that you're seeing. And I, and I think that in itself shows that he's comfortable with where he is.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. The other thing, too, just, and, and I know I said that was the last point a minute ago, but I'm going to make one more because you, you brought one to light. <laughs> um, two things that I would make note of. Uh, number one, he I noticed that he had slimmed down a little bit. He's not quite as bulked up. I mean, certainly he looks fit. Um, and I don't know whether that was intentional or just a, a byproduct of. of maybe some, some different fitness routines that he's working through now uh, in lieu of, you know, his, his back issues. Um, but he looked, you know, in good shape, but he looked a little slimmer than, than what I've seen him. Um, but you're right. He, I think what I noticed this time with him coming out and playing, as opposed to, you know, a few years ago when he was sort of re-entering, the, as John put it, in, into the game, uh, there just looks to be a, a more upbeat attitude in his personality and I think that's going to serve him well. I think he, not just the physical part, but I think mentally, I think he's ready to come back in. And I think maybe earlier attempts, he wasn't quite mentally there. He might have thought he was, but I, and I'm only guessing, of course, but uh, that was the impression I got. But anyways, um, I want to talk, and I know we've touched on some of these before, guys, but I just thought, as I said, this is the last show of the year. It'd be kind of fun just to you get some thoughts in people's mind as they as they get ready for the holidays but I I want to talk about and it's not just applicable of course to the majors but uh you know everybody gets uh, gets on the green and sometimes you're dealing with some fast greens so so John I'm going to jump to you here first on this one but uh is there a special technique that that uh, that you've uncovered or that you try to instill in your students uh when they're faced with some fast greens what's uh, what's I've, the way to best handle those
3: I would Quite honestly, I I recommend to all my clientele, regardless of skill level, that it's probably in your benefit to learn to putt fast greens because it's easier to adjust to the slow ones. Uh, Most people, as you're indicating, when they get on fast greens, they're all freaked out. Uh, they, They don't know how to accelerate the putter through the zone, even though that's what it requires. They're decelerating. So there's multiple times that if the greens are slow where I am, I may bring them, say, into the cart barn and put on cement. Believe it or not.
1: Yeah. Uh, right. The
3: the faster the green, the more control you're going to learn of your stroke and and of yourself, and of your distance <laughs> control. So when you're when you're faced with something fast and you've trained on something fast, it shouldn't be a surprise to you from the going the opposite way Uh, going slower there's multiple things you can do to hit putts longer Uh, I know there was a course I'm not going to name the course but I went from bent grass greens at a private club averaging 11 to 12 daily on the stint meter to a private club Mm. in a different region of South Carolina that was Bermuda and a different clientele, which was over 55 years old, and it rolled at six, and it just <clears> it threw me for a loop for quite a while. And I wow. tried everything, and I had to really think about this, and I made it much simpler for myself after a couple months. I bought a heavy putter. I bought a heavier putter than I did because what I was finding is I was jeopardizing my stroke by trying to hit it harder, hit it firmer. And then when I'd go visit the people on the – fast greens I was all screwed up so I think what you're really trying to do is is no matter what the speed is find a stroke that you can be comfortable with you can maintain preferably in my opinion on faster greens to where when you go to slower greens you can go to a little bit heavier putter if your swing's getting too big the bigger the swing gets the more likely put of error Uh, as far as that goes you can maybe put a little bit more weight on the front foot to help the acceleration of your putter. There's probably, again, bottom line is that putter's got to accelerate through the hitting zone. Uh, And if you're training that way with faster greens, it's easier to understand on a slower green how that acceleration works, where most amateurs, most weekend warriors, when they go from slow to fast, they've got no clue how to accelerate that putter. They're actually doing the opposite, and that's where they're uh, prone to errors come into play.
1: Right, yeah. And, and, you know, putting is is really such a personal thing. I think it's, it's different than really any other part of the game because, you know, as we've seen over the years, you know, you look how Nicholas putted. You know, he had a very open stance. You know, he had his left foot drawn back, and he kind of almost got his, his – you know, his eye behind the ball, um, as opposed to really over it, just to kind of see that that line, and of course, mm-hmm. keeping his his uh, hips and and whatnot open uh, allowed him to, as you said, John, to, to sort of accelerate through and make sure he got the club face through. Um, Pete, as far I mean, and without obviously getting repetitive here, um, you know, there is a lot of. Uh, I think the putter is next to the driver is probably the other. Uh, a piece of equipment that that there's so many variations out there you know you've got your blades your mallets and, and others uh is there is there a, a product out there and i don't necessarily mean from a manufacturer but a style of putter out there that that you found personally that that works uh, or is conducive uh on uh, on faster greens that you found more successful with that uh, or, or feedback from your students is that uh, is that something that makes a difference uh the equipment
2: well, I think it can. I'm, you know, first of all, for me, from a putter, when I set it down, it has to be something that that you know looks uh, good to me, but also something that I can set down square. It's really important, and I don't really care what the putter looks like, but I need to be able to set it down square to the line I'm looking at. And as long as I can do that, you know, I'm pretty good with how the putter is set up. I think lie angle is critical in getting the right lie of the putter, so it sits relative to the ground the right way. Um John made some great comments on different weights of putters, on different speeds of greens, yep. and that can make a big difference for sure. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think the setup of the putter is really critical. Um, you know, just to – as funny as it may seem, you know, you need to learn how to roll the ball properly. And people think right. that's funny sometimes when I say that. But if you're not rolling the ball properly, you're never going to be a good distance putter. And so you're going to struggle on the green. So you have to learn how to roll it and the right fit of a putter can help that tremendously. So, yeah, I think the equipment is, is really a big deal in putting, you know, we all see it. I mean, somebody gets to the driving range and they hit 50 drives for the pleasure of two and drive past the putting green and go tee off and wonder why they can't putt, you know, so, you know, they just avoid it to, you know, like crazy when it's, you know, probably one of the things that's going to save their game more than anything else. I was talking to a, a team that I volunteer coach with. And, and I told him, I said, you gotta be a genius on the greens. You know, that has yeah. to be, you know, where you're going to be. Cause that's going to make up a ton of stuff that doesn't go well, you know, in other places. Um, and when you're playing well, when you're good on the greens, your score is great. When you're not playing well, when you're good on the greens, you can still score. So, you know, I think putting and, and having the right fit of a putter um, if there was one bag, one club in my bag that I would have a fitting session with, it would be the putter.
1: Yeah. You know, and I agree with that. You know what's what's very interesting and it's kind of ironic really when you think about it, you know, most of your scoring opportunities of course happens on the putting green. I mean you can certainly chip in and, and obviously you want to have a, a tight short game beside, but um but it it's interesting that more often than not, now obviously some of the the older golfers or more senior golfers, I think, have kind of figured this out. You know, it's like anything, I think, with experience and age. But but John raised a very interesting point, and I want to get your thoughts on this uh, with his experience of, of playing, you know, two different courses. One, you know, having very fast greens and then one uh, being much slower. Um, what can a player really do in, in a case like that? You know, I mean, obviously you know, John's a seasoned veteran of the game. Uh, so, you know, and even it, he was a little bit baffled. So you get some of these amateurs out there that maybe you're playing different courses and you're going virtually from one extreme to the other. How do you, how do you react to something like that? Because it, it's going to take a few holes to kind of readjust. How do you prepare for something like that, Pete?
2: Even when you're just playing, you know, any type of round of golf you're playing, you have to have a plan when you're going into it and spending time on that green before you go out to play is important because you're going to be able to to get a sense of what the speed of the greens are like. And so you should spend some time on the putting green. I just had a session. I told you I was out to working with some of my players. And when we went to putting and they were, they were asking me, you know, what do you do before you play? I said, I make sure I never put to a hole. All I'm trying to do is figure out how fast the green is, you know, right. and once I look at a hole, then everything's about make it, put it in the hole. So I would, run through some drills, some distance drills and just work on, you know, how hard am I going to hit it to go this far? Um, you know, and that can be a, a big big plus. And I know some people say, well, you know, the practice green may not be the same speed as the greens on the course. Well, it's better than nothing. You know, so you need to yeah. get a good feel for those greens when you get there. And I would highly recommend that, you know, part of your warm up routine is doing some distance drills on that green before you take off so you have an idea what the speed is.
1: Right. Exactly. Um, and, John, I, I want to go to the, another question. Unless you have any other uh, thoughts you want to add to that uh, that part of the discussion?
3: No, I agree with Pete. It's, it is about a plan going to the green prior. To, it's, I, I can't name names here, but I, I've yeah. got a client years ago that said they, they just rushed to the golf course and it would take 13 holes, and this person in their regular life is Nicknamed Mr. Prepared And I said why don't you take some time On the green and just figure the speed Out Uh, He didn't want it to be work I'm like you don't have to It doesn't have to be work it takes Four five six putts that's it Whether you're putting to a hole or not Pete brings up a great point if you're Trying to judge the speed Then focus on speed but As soon as you get the speed you got to get Target oriented because that's what the Game's about but it turns Mm. out This gentleman goes out just spends four, five, six putts figuring out the distance. And lo and behold, even though he's still Mr. Speedy Gonzalez getting to the golf course, playing better, just simply due right. to getting distance control down. That That's really the key. And I watch so many amateurs where I am. They hit a ton of balls, bypass the green. The green's on the way to the first tee. They have to walk by it or drive by it. And so few people go there. And then they wonder why. Their scores are like they are. Well, they were taking stats of their putting, I guarantee you, their three-putting, four, five, six, seven, maybe ten times around because they don't have the speed down.
1: Right. And, you know, the other thing, too, and, and John, you, you just uh, really made a, an excellent point here, is, you know, most golfers heading out to, to their, their rounds – go and hit balls uh, on the range and, you know, certainly some will go to the to the putting green and if they've got time, but I, I think what a lot of it is, I think psychologically the reason why a lot of golfers do that is they don't want to, um, they want to make sure they're hitting it decent. They don't want to get up to that first tee and, you know, duck hook it or, or slice it or whatever the, you know, uh, shot, shape, uh, shape shot that they've got. Um, you know, they, they don't want to look foolish, but yet they spend little or no time on the putting green or chi- or chipping, uh, you know, on the greens. Um, so, you know, they might hit a great drive, but then once they get up to the green, uh, you know, they're still bogeying or, or double or even triple bogeying because they haven't worked on uh, the other assets, uh, you know, of the game because they're too focused on, on, uh, on you know, trying to hit the perfect shot out, um, you know, off the tee. And, and that's just the wrong way to to really focus things. Um, John, I want to stick with you for just a second, just um, on this next question. What do you do in a case? And I'm sure you've had many, many players uh, mention this to you. If if a course uh, or, or several holes on the course just don't fit your eye, uh, how do you handle those holes? There's always going to be, you know, Nicholas talked famously about that, you know, that certain courses just didn't fit his eye. Uh, and, you know, he went out and played, obviously, his game, but um, what do you do, or how do you advise uh, or coach a player that's uh, maybe going to play a course or two uh, in their life where they're just not going to, it's just not going to fit their eye?
3: I've had that come up a couple of times in the past month with clients that came in for extended golf schools, where we're playing a golf course, and within a couple of holes are saying, wow, this is a tougher course than I'm used to or there's a lot of right to left, so I don't hit the ball right to left or vice versa. Uh, what I try to have them do is understand the golf course and how the architect literally lays out a golf course, which is backwards. A lot of people don't realize this. I've gotten this information from numerous architects throughout my career They're looking for fantastic green complex areas based on the land use plot that the owner of the golf course has. They're finding best places to put irrigation, drainage, that kind of thing. And then once they figure out where the greens go, then they're going to route the golf course and go backwards from there. So if you go to the green and look backwards, and I wrote a piece on this for uh, Golf Illustrated years ago. going to be doing another piece for Golf Tips here next year about the same thing. If you look backwards at a hole, you'll get to understand what the architect's trying to have you do. So now all of a sudden, let's say you hate looking at right-to-left shots. Uh, You go ahead and play the hole. You're looking backwards. All of a sudden, it becomes a left-to-right backwards, and you get to understand where everything that was in your eye that was making you feel visually uncomfortable most likely has disappeared. Uh, bunkers, hazards, uh, trees that are poking out in the middle. And from there, you can now shorten the golf course is the term I use. When someone's just really chomping at the bit saying, I I don't like this hole, I'm trying to get them to focus on shorter targets and not just on the hole itself and play a game within a game to something that they like. Again, going back to a right-to-left or left-to-right shot shape, If you're really wanting to play that right-to-left shot shape, yet you can't hit the fade, and that's what the course requires for that particular hole, what's that target out in the middle of the fairway that you can hit a right-to-left shot to? Once you've done that, and in particular, I see it more off the tee than, say, fairway to the green. The better players, you see a little bit more fairway to green, and even then, we're trying to shorten it up, uh, trying to have them focus on smaller things, not bigger things, because that's the way your eyes and your brain are hardwired to see and focus on smaller targets. So if the pin's in the wrong place for them visually, we I try to have them imagine another target on another part of the green that better fits their eye, better fits the shape of their constant <clears throat> ball flight. And it makes things easier. Even for the high handicapper, it makes things easier because now you're making, say, a par four or par five, four or five different compartments of the hole right. versus the entire hole itself. Uh, from a mental standpoint, it makes it easier. From a visual standpoint, all of a sudden it becomes a little bit more comfortable. Uh, and then from a confidence level, if you string a couple of shots together, you look backwards and see that you did it based on how the architect wants you to play the hole. it doesn't become an easier game. It becomes an easier game for you to understand based on the strengths that you have and the, the envisionment of your shots that you want to see consistently.
1: Right, right. Well, well, well put together. Um, Pete, you know, Nicholas, as I mentioned, you know, uh, often referred to certain holes or even golf courses that didn't fit his eye and i remember him years ago one of the comments he made uh, and again i'm just you know paraphrasing here but uh, essentially what he said was he didn't try to uh, obviously he was a fader of the ball and that was his his sort of go to uh, shot but he if he came upon a hole that just didn't really look good to him um you know he didn't try to be too aggressive you know he was he'd be happy if he got out of there with a the par and and if anything better than that obviously that was a bonus um but he didn't try to do anything fancy uh, is that kind of along the same advice? I mean, obviously I'm sure you could pick up on a lot of John's points uh, and, and agree with as well. Um, but is that kind of the thinking as well that you have is, is that don't try to, you know, if, if a hole or course doesn't fit well, don't try to be too aggressive on it.
2: Well, absolutely. I can tell you one specific player that I have that every time he tries to shape a tee ball, many times he said, you know, your eye has to see straight. You know, if the, if the hole curves hit it straight to the corner and then play, you know, it's one of those things that you have to be able to, to you know, to understand your limitations and and know what fits your game and what doesn't fit your game. Um, when I was growing up as a kid, I hooked everything. So if the hole went left or right, I just stood there on the tee and scratched my head. You know, how do I play this? Because every ball I hit goes away from the hole. So, you know, you have to understand, you know, what you're doing and, and then, you know, try to do it. And I think it goes back to getting prepared. I mean, Nicholas, uh, you know, Tiger Woods, I mean, they were so much better prepared to play the golf courses that they played than anybody else was because they knew what the course entailed. They knew what their limitations were and they knew what best to do so that they could adapt their game to that golf course. And, you know, and in some cases, you know, it it doesn't work. You know, Trevino was one that didn't like the masters because it didn't fit his eye. It didn't fit his game. You know, he said, I just never played well there because it didn't, it didn't fit what I was trying to do. But I think, in the end, you always have to, you know, Excuse put me. the game plan together and then, you know, understand, um, you know, what your limitations are. And I think everybody knows what they are. I mean, I've always said, you know, a sure double bogey is when you stand on the tee and said, hey, I, I heard I heard this on or I saw this on TV. I'm going to try it. Yeah, that's a good chance for a double right. bogey, you know, trying something <laughs> you're not used to. Right. <laughs> You know, you have to, you have to play the things you can play. I mean, if you hit a fade and that's, that's what you do. And then after, you know, 12 fades, you're going to then draw one on the next hole. um, You know, you're probably going to be in for some trouble, you know, so, so play with what you have and you, and you can score with what you have. I mean, that's, that's the one thing that I try to get people to understand is I can take them out to the golf course without giving them one ounce of swing work and help them score better with what they have you know looking at the golf course and fitting it to them
1: right and 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 guys you know uh, and i'll sort of open this up to, to either one that wants to jump in on this but you know something that i'd like to see um sort of a resurgence and i know that there are still some out there but they seem to be further and fewer uh uh between um I used to like some of the old executive, what they used to refer to, or, or I refer to as uh, executive courses, and I know there are still some out there. But um, you know, what we're seeing now, in, or have been for the last you know decade or so, is a, a lot of these you know monster courses that were just extremely long. And I would love to see more uh, executive courses out there and allow people to to go and really work on their game there um, before they get out. And the reason why I say this is. You know, you're pretty much dealing with with obviously all par threes in most cases are very, very short. And I mean very short par four if there is a few on there. Um, But it it really caused people to focus on um, the shorter aspects of their game. And it was easier and more attainable to, to make a par. And I think because a lot of people get out there and they get on these holes that are 500 and whatever the case is, you know even if it's a par five, and they're so long and they just don't have the game for it. Uh, and they're, they're struggling out there, and I think it just sort of deflates their, their ego, number one, but also uh, th- they just don't have the ability on some of these longer courses, and I think that this would be a good way to, to maybe help build some confidence. Um, any thoughts to that, guys, maybe having more executive courses? And I think it would also be uh, more fun for entry-level players uh, that maybe haven't played a lot of golf uh, to start out on, on an executive-type course.
3: To- totally and agree, and I'm going to hit this. I'm going to hit this three pronged. I, I was. I'm. I'm very fortunate that I served the members of North Florida as an officer, and because of that, I go to the annual meetings of the PGA. And this year, Jack Nicklaus was our keynote, and he basically said, "You know what? We we have outdistanced the game." To sort of paraphrase what he said there, that between right. the ball and people, absolutely insisting on courses being 7,000 yards, we're, we're, we're baking people out of the game. Literally, uh, they get so heated, so frustrated that people just leave. Whereas when he was a kid, when he was brought up, Siota wasn't very long. It's been renovated a couple of times to get to 7,000, but that's what you started on. And, there's tons of great places like that. There's a famous theme park where I am that has a nine-hole <clears throat> executive course that's absolutely wonderful to play, That I recommend to my absolute beginners to go play all the time. Uh, it. I, I had a golf school during Thanksgiving with uh, an older gentleman who's just now taking up the game. We played the forward tees. He absolutely loved it. If I had brought him back to where his buddies wanted to play – it would have been like pulling what few hairs he had out of his head. Uh, there's a great <laughs> friend of mine, Mick Potter, who's the women's coach at Alabama. Uh, I met him when he was the men's and women's at Furman, and he used to bring the teams over to the course where I was employed, and he'd have the men play the forward tees in preparation for tournaments. And he would change the par, but he'd place emphasis on the scoring, exactly what you're talking about, Ted. So, right. you know, the three different phases of this are whether you're a beginner or an absolute fantastic player, playing those forwards tees can not only be fun, it can be a challenge based on how you go about preparing your mind for that challenge, number one. Number two, play the tees that, that are built for you. And don't buy into the marketing of you got to hit a, something 300 yards. How many people can really do that? Let's be realistic. Right. Let's be realistic with your skill level and put yourself on those tees that make sense for you that you can have fun. And number 3, you don't have to play the back tees because everybody's cajoling you into it. Go play the tees where you're competitive. That's why there's there's a handicap system. That's why there you take your index and apply it to a chart at the golf course so you can make a fair game. Uh, there were seniors yeah. at this private club that I'm talking about they would they'd have fits cuz they were playing <clears> the forward tee yet they were giving strokes to the guy playing the back tee yes it's a much tougher golf course but move even more forward you can give this guy enough strokes and move him back enough where it's an even it's an even game at the end of the day right. you're you're going to be within two or three strokes of each other it's uh, I've always lived by this you've heard me say this before mm. I have fun or I change what I do. And this is a perfect example of it. Change the tees. Play the tees that best represent your skill level where you can have the most fun.
1: You're exactly right. And, Pete, I'm going to obviously get you to chime in here in just a second. But, you know, I had a conversation with a gentleman the other day about two days ago, and we were talking about this very thing. And he said, you know, and he's uh, 72, uh, still pretty fit, and, you know, he was a former bodybuilder and so he you know he's still got a pretty good frame on him but he said you know he obviously has some back issues and things like that and he just said you know I just can't I can't hit it as far as I used to and he said that you know you get on some of these golf courses especially you know he comes down here to Florida and you know as as John pointed out you know some of these courses you know 7,000 plus yards and you know he can certainly move up on the tees net, but they're still very very challenging and I said to him you know you need to get out there and, and find uh, some shorter courses uh, number one if, if you're finding the courses that you have been playing are just you know too challenging um, but he said you know he remembered you, the same thing as I do is playing you know when he was younger uh, on some of these executive courses and he had just as much fun as he did playing uh, you know some of the resort courses and again we're not trying to knock the uh, you know some of the resort courses in that but they are uh, as you pointed out John and, and Pete I'm sure you concur uh it's causing a lot of a lot of people or has caused a lot of people to drop out because it's just it's too hard for them. They just are not enjoying it and they're not having fun. Um Pete, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Oh, I agree wholeheartedly. Um we have a golf course just down the road from where I live. 18 hole regulation, there's a 9 hole par 3 course. Uh the shortest holes 80 yards and the longest ones 145. And it, sadly enough There's not a lot of people on it, and it's one of the best places you could possibly go to work on your game, not only from a short game standpoint and scoring, but also from just learning how to be out there with those smaller holes. Uh, My daughter started playing this summer, and that's where we started. I took her out there. She had a blast out there. You know, just didn't feel so intimidated that, you know, the holes are so long. You know, and they get out on those long ones and they hit four or five shots and they just pick up their ball and they get discouraged like you're talking about. So, yeah, I, I yeah. agree that, you know, you know, from a regular golf course standpoint, I've always told everybody, you know, I, I always challenge the members when I was back home. I said, move up to the front tees and don't move back until you can shoot par. You know, stay up. Right. You know, you're, you're equating it to a shorter golf course. I'm, I'm just trying <clears throat> to get you to, you know, play better. Move up. There's nothing wrong with moving up. You know, I've always said, too, if a tour player came to this hole, they'd hit a driver in a seven iron. Find a tee box where it's the same for you if you want to try to play right. like a tour player does, you know. Right, and, exactly. And I know the distance factors out there, and, and everybody's talking about, you know, in today's instruction, we fight it all the time. I want to hit it further. I want to hit it further. I want to hit it further, you know. And, and I'm always saying, well, you're doing a pretty good job because you keep hitting it further away from the hole, you know. So right. why don't we get it so to it goes toward the <laughs> hole first, you know, right? And then, then we can work on something from there. Um, but you know, to me, there's two indicators in the game of golf: what the ball does and what you shoot, what your score is. So start with the scoring right. shots. Get on those shorter golf courses. Find the par threes. You know, um, you know, if if you can play at a at a time of day when there's not many people out there, drive up to the 150 yard marker and play from there. You know, we always did that with our new players when I was with the golf school. We just drove down there and we started from 150 yards out just to give them an idea of being out there, getting comfortable, hitting shots, having some fun around the greens, you know, start to scoring shots from putting and chipping and pitching and then move backwards from there.
3: One of the things I'll uh, add
2: to what Go ahead.
3: ahead. No, one of the things I was going to add to that. uh, And I think Pete will agree with this. Uh, my my game changed when i forgot about distance and was told make par on threes and fives and the fours will take care of themselves and it took me a little while to figure that out it took me a couple couple holes cuz i was just bullheaded i was stubborn and then realized okay i'm going to play the threes where i can make a par and I'm going to play the fives where I know I can make a par. And then all of a sudden, my scores just dropped like rocks, like yep. lead bricks. Uh, and it, it does go hand-in-hand in, hand in parcel with tee box positions. Uh, it, you're trying to play a par three from 200 yards and can't make a par? Go back to what Pete said. It, it wasn't meant for you to hit hybrid, too. The pros are hitting six iron. Move up to a box where you can hit six iron and you have a good opportunity to make par. It's it's basically I'm saying the same thing, but if you think about threes and fives as your par holes, not as birdie holes, just think of them as par holes, and let the par force take care of themselves. You'll be very surprised how quickly your score drops.
1: Oh yeah, you're you're exactly right. You know, and just just a final uh, thought on that. You know, when I. One of the reasons I really enjoyed, you know, uh, and this is, I'm dating myself now, but probably going back about 30 years, um, you know, a lot of my friends, of course, I played, you know, golf from a very early age. So I was, you know, a good player at the time and, and, you know, still pretty, still can hold my own. But but I, you know, would play obviously most of the standard courses out there. and, And at that time, you know, they only had basically three sets of tees they had the men's they had the you know the ladies tee and then they had the championship tees now you know you can go there and i'm sure this course i think uh john you probably concur where you can actually get as many as six and even seven variations of of tee positions but um but back then you only had that and a lot of my friends that were not golfers um were very intimidated because you know certainly god forbid they were going to not move up to the ladies' tee. Um, but that even from the men's tee was a challenge for them. And so I remembered, you know, there were a few executive courses around. So, you know, I would corral them out there, uh, on a Sunday or, or a Saturday and they had a blast because it was achievable for them. Um, you know, they, they just couldn't play some of the regular course. They didn't play enough golf, but they enjoyed it on the executive courses. And, you know, we used to go out there and make a, a regular weekend uh, deal of it. And I had just as much fun as they did, even though I w- had an easier time with it, um, but they were feeling like they could be a little more competitive uh, with me than than on some of the regular courses, and they enjoyed it. Plus, it was cheaper for, for them too, which I'm sure had something to do with it. But, um, but I, I agree. I wish I you know we would see more of that because that's a complaint I get is a lot of golfers just say it's just too hard. They're frustrated. The courses are too tough. Um, you know, it's not just the distance, but there's other factors as well, which you know we can discuss another time. But um, final question, guys, before I let you split. I see we're running close to our time um, and uh, and Pete, I'll let you tackle this one first, then John, just some thoughts on it. Uh, it it important for a player, especially coming into a tournament, and this can be a professional or, or even uh, a club championship is it important to come out of the gate quickly or should you pace yourself?
2: Oh, I think you should pace yourself and let the golf course come to you. Um, you know, when I used to warm up before a tournament, the last probably half a dozen to, you know, 10 shots I would hit was with, with the driver so I could see if I could use it. Um, if I can't find right. the range, you know, when I'm warming up, I'm not going to find it on the first tee. So I would always try to ease myself into it. Um, you know, a lot of times I would I would take a far a par four starting hole and i split it in half and hit, and, and if it's 400, I'd hit two 200-yard shots, you know, just to ease myself into the game and get going. Um, so I think you should always, you know, let it come to you. I mean, um, it's it's real easy uh, if if you birdie the first couple of holes or or you know, one under what you normally shoot on the first couple of holes to you know start oh man I'm gonna I, you know start pressing right away. But I think just let the golf course come to you. Um, get yourself uh, ease into it. Get relaxed, and um, I think you'll find you'll you'll have an easier time scoring doing that uh, instead of pressing right out of the gate.
1: Yeah, uh, and and obviously uh, certain things uh, I guess depend on the on the personality and and the the, the type. I mean, some people are, are very uh, highly competitive and they want to you know get going right away, but uh, others can be you know have a more slower pace to the game. John, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, out, out of the gate quickly, or or do you agree with Pete uh, uh, pacing yourself as a, a smarter play?
3: A hundred percent agree with with Pete. Uh, a lot of times, if if you're trying to sprint right out of the gate and you haven't prepared yourself long before the tournament day or the round, the whatever round, whether it's a tournament or not, uh,
1: mm-hmm.
3: you're just setting yourself up for disaster. You, you just got to let, let things come to you very organically. There are days you're going to hit driver fantastic. You can't hit the broad side of a barn when it comes to a short iron. Uh, but then there's other days it's the opposite, and you just have to figure, figure that puzzle out each and every time. You play oh, sometimes on every hole. You have to figure it out. So if you've, if you've got an expectation that, okay, I can birdie the first three out of five, let's talk about it not as an expectation. Let's talk about it as a task-oriented process. Let's complete a task and complete another, complete another. And, hey, if you make birdie, great. And if you don't, no big deal. You haven't hurt yourself. Allowing the game to come to you that way, versus trying to force things. It, it it never works when you try to force nature. Never. It comes back to bite you. And golf's no different. If you just you don't have to be conservative and and lay up and bunt things down the fairway that way. Right. Play your game and and just let let the day come to you. Let the people you surround yourself with, whether by choice or not, let that happen. Let the atmosphere happen. Let your skills happen. Uh, You get into a better overall rhythm that way. And what you find is when you need to press the gas a little maybe late in the round, it's easier to do because you've walked in there with zero expectation other than let's do what comes natural.
1: Yep. Well said. And I think the other thing I would add to it as well is – uh, and, and I know, you know, ultimately this is sort of the the, the main thought here. But um, you know, play your game. Uh, too often, you know, you get guys in a group, and uh, you know, maybe you've got uh, a, a golfer that that, like you said, comes out of the gate, steps on the gas a little bit, and it, it's very, um, you know, very common to see other players try to keep up pace with somebody else. You need to really focus on on your game and not get distracted, but let them play their game. If they want to play more aggressive, uh, right from the gate, then that's how they want to play. Uh, and even if you fall a few strokes behind them, uh, stick to your routine and stick to your game. Don't get, you know, fall into that trap because I think one of the, and I'm sure you probably both agree that once you start adapting to somebody else's game, then suddenly the, you know, uh, your game kind of falls by the wayside because you're not playing, uh, maybe necessarily to your strengths or, or, uh, are uh, handling uh, the, the course the way that you would normally handle it? You're now dealing it in the same manner that that person's playing. Would you agree with that, guys? Agree, well, absolutely. And absolutely. on that note, yeah, well, on that note, guys, thank you for for closing out the uh, the final coaches' corner uh, panel discussion on uh, of 2016. Uh, appreciate well, uh, as well, always your thoughts dead. and input. Uh, appreciate right. so it. We and, certainly uh,
2: appreciate having you. Uh, put this platform out there, I've said it before i mean it's a it's a great thing to have and and it's, it's a it's a really cool thing that you're doing
1: well I appreciate it and, and just to let the, thank you John and Pete and i that's why I enjoy having you guys back so much and and I hope you'll be able to join in next year as well and the, and the schedule for those of you tuning in that uh, have been on the show before um i'll say this to you as well uh, i'll be sending out the the 2017 schedule for everybody to sign up for so i hope uh, uh john and pete that you'll be able to jump in again uh, aggressively next year and just on a quick note i was starting to tell you guys before we went live um something that uh, we'll be doing a little bit differently uh we'll certainly have some of the uh great panel discussions that we've been having but something i'm going to be adding into the mix uh, throughout the months is uh we're going to have some sp- uh, special guest speakers that specialize in certain areas of the game, whether it be biomechanics or whether it be uh, maybe uh, people in the equipment side of golf or what have you uh, are going to be joining in the panel discussion uh, with their special uh, area of expertise to add a a little different twist, a little different flavor to some of the discussion. So I think it'll be uh, a great addition to the Coach's Corner discussions. And uh, we're going to have some more um, uh, player involvement and also some great uh, amateur involvement as well. I've got some people lined up that, that want to come on and, and uh, maybe have some help with their game. So we want to expand it a little bit for 2017. So I hope you guys can make it uh, in the in schedule next year. But in the meantime, again, John and, and Pete, thank you very much as always uh, for helping me to put together a fantastic 2016. And I want to wish both of you and your families um, a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, and uh, we'll be in touch soon. All
2: right. Thanks, so thanks Ed, same to you Same to you and your family. You bet.
1: All right. All right. Thanks, guys. Have a great weekend and uh, and uh, a happy holiday.
2: All right. Thanks, guys.
1: All right. Bye-bye.
2: Bye.
1: All right. That was my very special guest on the Coach's Corner panel: uh, John Hughes and Pete Buchanan, uh, a couple of great guys, as I said, that have been on the show uh, many, many times and always enjoy their. Uh, thoughts and input and uh, I think together between the two of them I think they've got about 60 years of experience uh, which is a, a heck of a lot of experience to uh, to bring to the table and uh, that's why I value their uh, input so so greatly and uh, I want to thank just uh, well I've got a few moments here before my my next guest comes on uh, to help close out the the final year uh, I want to thank uh, all of the uh, Panelists that have been on the coach's Corner over the year, uh, my good friend Clint Wright, uh, Matthew Cook has been on the show, um, Chuck Evans, um, uh, just a, a ton of them, I can't remember, I feel bad, I can't remember all of their names, I, should, I forgot to bring my list out, so I apologize if I... Uh, but th- those are certainly just a few of them um, that have been on the, the show over the last uh, several years, but particularly on the coach's corner panel. So I want to thank you ladies and gentlemen for, for jumping in and doing that every, uh, every year. And as I said, the schedule will be coming out here uh, in just a few weeks. I'll try to get it out to you before Christmas so that we can get the schedule together uh, before the new year starts. And I'll announce the specific dates uh, as well at that time on social media, uh, when we'll be uh, bring the uh, 2017 uh, season to start but uh, in the meantime let me bring on a very uh, very good friend of mine who I've had the pleasure of uh, having on the show a number of uh, times and uh, also had his uh, his father who you all know of course uh, on the show as well a few years back Um, My very good friend uh, Byron Casper. He's the director of golf at the Casper Golf Academy in San Diego, California, and of course, son of the legendary Billy Casper. Uh, Let me bring him out here, and we're going to have a a nice, casual conversation to close out the show for uh, for 2016. So let me bring on my good friend. Good evening, Byron. Good to be here, Ted. Well, thank you for coming on uh, Golf Talk Live on my, my final show for the season. And uh, I can't think of a better way to, to end the year than uh, than having you on the show. And, and I just want to make a quick uh, note I, I did mention earlier, but um, unfortunately, uh, Brandon Stukesbury, who is the uh, uh, director of golf at the Isle Hour uh, Golf Club in uh, Macon, Georgia, was supposed to join us as well. But unfortunately, he was uh, pulled away uh, last minute uh, and isn't going to be able to join us, uh, which just means more time for you and I uh, over the next <laughs> hour to, uh, to chat about some golf. And I, listen, based on our conversation on the phone last night and uh, I guess about a week or so ago, uh, we'll have no problem. And uh, you and I carrying uh, the conversation. And uh, I, total, I but, totally, I uh, totally agree. I think <laughs> you and I can do that. Yeah. Let, let's talk about something. And, and I talked about it earlier with the guys uh, on the panel on the coaches corner panel, uh, a little bit about Tiger. I don't know how much of the, uh, the tournament you caught. I know we had a discussion last night, and we certainly don't have time to get into everything. But um, one of the things I think that, that impressed me that I saw uh, in this past weekend, and again, I didn't see the whole tournament, um, but was the fact that he just seemed to have a, a much better uh, demeanor out in the golf course, John uh, Hughes, who was on the show just a, a few moments ago, uh, made the comment that he, you know, he saw him smile uh, a few times and kind of joking around out there. Um, and, you know, we haven't seen that out of Tiger for a while. Uh, what of the tournament that you saw of him in it this weekend, uh, what, did your, what was your feeling on, on, on how he played, but also uh, his, his overall demeanor? Did you, did you notice anything that sort of struck your eye as well?
4: Um, you know, a couple things. I would say the first thing that um that struck my my eye was watching uh watching his first round back. Um, you know, it was it was interesting to watch because it didn't take him very long to get back on stream. Um, you know, it was a little bit up and down, but you would have expected that um from anybody. Um and he, you know, he got his game back on stream very quickly. I would agree with uh, with what your colleague said that um, there were quite a few moments when he looked like he was actually enjoying himself. And yeah. uh, when was the last time that we saw Tiger enjoy himself on the golf course? You know, it's, it's been a while, unfortunately. Right. So, um, so I right. think that that speaks very highly to his mental game and, um, and to the, the place that he probably is mentally right now, which is why it's a great time for him to come back. If he can, he can keep the injuries at bay and he's in a good place mentally then um then i see great things um you know for him over the next few years
1: right exactly and and that's why you know i, I mentioned earlier in the program you know i think this time feels a little bit different uh, you know i've seen you know obviously um, you know tiger was playing some fantastic golf uh you know for for many many years and then obviously, you know, some things in his personal life changed that in, you know, late mm-hmm. 2009, early 2010, um, which, you know, obviously we don't need to get into. Everybody knows about it. But um, but when he tried to come back, I think, and, and I think we discussed last night uh, on the phone, was he, I think he tried to come back too early. And you could just tell, and even uh, uh, I think it was the following year when he tried to come back and before really some of the injuries uh, started to happen – uh, you know, his, his mind just didn't seem to be there. You know, he'd go out there and hit some great golf shots here and there, but it just, you could just kind of tell by looking at him, he didn't look like he was, he was really on the golf course. Um, and and this time here, this past weekend, what I really noticed was he came and looked like he was ready to play, not just physically, but he looked mentally like he was refreshed and ready to play. Um, do you agree with that? I, I totally agree. Um, he did. He
4: looked a little skinnier, um, probably, you know, I'm just taking a guess, but he's probably do, been doing more cardio than, than weights um, because it, he did look like he'd trimmed down a little bit. Um, he, uh, which I think personally, I think is going to add to his flexibility, which he needs um, as we all need, as we get older. But yeah, I think, think he just looked, looked happy. He looked um, um, uh, I would say he looked almost more happy than he did aggressive. And uh, you know, we've seen tiger plenty of times being aggressive um, but we just haven't seen a lot of that. Enjoying himself on the golf course again, attitude, and and I love seeing that. I think it's great for golf.
1: Yeah, and I think the focus, um, and and I would say I would use the word focus because uh, I know what you meant by aggressive. But you know when he would sort of zero in and and really you know sink his claws, no no pun intended, uh, into the course and and just you know in some cases blow the field away. I think that will you know if if he feels that his game is, is back where he needs it to be, I think you're going to see him become more focused and, and more aggressive out in the golf course. Uh, and and obviously, hopefully, the results will come with it. But I think for now, it's just good to see him out there. You know, he looks healthy, as you said. And, and yes, he's certainly trimmed down uh, a little bit here uh, from the last time we saw him. But I think, as you said, I think it's probably... In fact, I remember somebody saying on the weekend that uh, uh, they were talking to one of the other players and he was mentioning that uh, he, he's not... Doing as much of a, a weight regimented uh, workout routine as he did before. And I think that's why you're mm-hmm. not as bulked up. So, um, yeah, you I know, mean, kudos, yeah, kudos to him. And, and you know, and, and listen, uh, in, in a few short weeks, he's going to be 41 years old. So, and that, the other thing we talked about last night, which I think is good for all golfers, especially for those of us that are, that are creeping up there in years. I know I'm a few uh, years above you, uh, uh, Byron, but uh, you're catching up pretty quick. Um, I want to talk about that. Because I want to talk about um, and, and and let you brag a little bit about what, what you've been doing here because I know um, for two reasons. Number one, um, I, I think as we start to age, uh, obviously our bodies change and we have to, you know, uh, adapt, if you will, as we go along. You're doing some things now in your sort of workout and, and your routines and your daily life uh, in preparation for – Uh, you know, being more competitive in in tournament play that you're planning down the road. And I won't give all the details out. I'll let you give whatever you want, but um, talk a little bit about that. Why have you changed up some of the things that you're doing and what are the benefits that you've been noticing?
4: Well, you know, I used to think of having a a bad injury. Um, If you remember from previous shows, you know, we've talked a little bit about that, but you know, having a, having hurt my pelvis, uh, my left foot and having a major shoulder surgery, um, you know, I used to look at it as a negative thing. Um, when in reality, actually, it turned out to be a great thing because I had to I, I, to educate myself and um, on really what it takes to to get back to not just playing golf, but playing competitively. Um, and so, it's really been a journey over the last five years. But this last year, um, as I'm getting closer to fifty. I'm looking around and I'm seeing the talent that exists um, on the champions tour, the guys that are my age that are coming up and they really have the same uh, level of flexibility and same passion, um, you know, that they had when they were younger. And and I want to keep that up myself. And so um, what I've been doing is I've been researching and finding out very specific what athletes that are our age need to do in order to, again, stay flexible, um, stay fit. Um, and it's a nice combination of cardio and, um, and, and small amounts of weights, um, and combining them. Um, and so what I've been doing four or five days a week, um, for almost three months now is combining, um, a little bit of weight training, uh, with, um, running on the treadmill, um, and doing, you know, intervals, 10 minutes on and 10 minutes of some, some light lifting and stretching and yoga, and then, again, 10 minutes on again. And doing that for about 30, 40 minutes, uh, again, four or five times a week, sometimes 50 minutes. Um, and what I've found is it, it really has enhanced every aspect of my game. I went out and played less than a week ago with another uh, fellow golf pro who was actually on the Champions Tour. And um, I was really amazed at how strong I felt, Ted. Um, and I think that's what we were talking about last night is, you know, we right. have to do things that, that make us stronger mentally and physically. And, um, you, know, you know, it doesn't mean you have to try super hard. It just means you have to try. And, uh, and so I think what I've done is I've just found a, uh, a, a nice place for me that isn't hitting the gym five days, six days a week, which I don't have time for. But it is doing, right. you know, a good 45 minutes to an hour of cardio and light weights and yoga um, five, six days a week, which I can fit in. And mm-hmm. um, all I can say is take it for me, fellow golfers, um, you know, if you're <laughs> 40 or, or, or over, um, spend a month just trying to understand what it takes your body to be in its best shape. And you're going to see every aspect of your life improve, not just on the golf course, but every aspect, sure. um, because that's what I've seen. So there you go.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well said. And, and you know, an interesting observation that you made last night in our conversation in, in discussing this um, and I just want to go back to Tiger just real quick and then then we'll move on. But, um, you know, something that you said that, that you noticed that earlier on when he was what I would say more bulked up, that you felt that it was actually impeding his golf swing a little bit, that he wasn't really getting uh, into the positions he needed to be because, you know, his body was, uh, I guess, for lack of better terms, was kind of getting in the way compared to what he was when he first came out in tour where he was a little bit longer and leaner. um, You know, he was able to get into those positions. And and I think that sometimes, especially for, for, for the guys out there that, you know, do more weightlifting and things. I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing some weights. But if you get too bulked up, it's certainly not conducive for a good golf swing because it, it does, um, you know, if you get too bulked up, you, you're not gonna, you're gonna lose some of that range of motion and flexibility. Is that a, an accurate statement? Do you think?
4: Oh, I would say that's that's hugely accurate. Um, but also, I have to throw in this caveat because I, you know, I have two friends in particular that if they're listening to this, they're gonna be kicking my butt later on um, because <laughs> they they both are. <clears throat> one of is a competitive bodybuilder, and I kid you not. At the age of 63, um, wow. he, he's kind of my idol because um, he looks like he's about 35 or 40. Um, but in saying that, and they both play golf, and in saying that they do have restricted movements when it comes to how far they're able to turn. Um, and, of course, the, those big giant laps get in the way. And, um, and so, yeah, there's, of course there's nothing wrong with, with hitting the gym or working out um, or lifting weights. Um, that's something that a lot of people I know do. What I'm saying is very specifically that if you want to have the best golf swing that you personally can have, then you need to combine two things. Absolutely. You need to combine as much flexibility as you, as you can get some strength. It doesn't have to be a lot, but if you can find a way to combine those two for, for you personally, you're going to see enhancements
1: in, in, in your golf game that you never dreamed possible. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, I agree with that. Well said. Um, let me ask you something. Just in, in, in sort of preparation um, for for getting out on the on the Champions Tour, um, obviously you're going to be working on a little of everything. But is there specific areas in your game, based on how you're playing now, that you're going to spend more time focusing on? And and if so. Uh, why are you focusing on those specific areas? Are they deficiencies in your game that you're working on or, or you just know that by working a little harder on these areas, it's going to pay dividends when you get out on tour.
4: You know, it's interesting. I, um, I, I, I work to answer your question simply, and then I'll go into a little bit more detail. um, I work on exactly what my father um, told me uh, I needed to in our very last uh, playing lesson at Hobble Creek golf course. And, in uh, Springville, Utah. And um, that day I, I couldn't have been more on. I, you know, I probably wasn't 15 feet, 10 feet away from the pin all day long. But the one thing that I um, definitely needed to work on was um, uh, specifically uh, short around the green shots um, and also putting. Um, and, uh, you know, my dad being one of the greatest putters in the history of the game – um doesn't necessarily mean that 's going to rub off <laughs> and <Right>. um, <laughs> and so and so you know putting's very very much something that I think everybody needs to work on, but that's that 's a shortfall in my particular game um and you know when you're trying to prepare for any competitive golf, but especially tour golf, as you know ted um it's very difficult when it comes to putting because the greens that we play on when we 're playing in professional events are always two, three times as fast as the greens you end up practicing on at, at your local courses. And right. um, and so yeah, it, that's probably the more difficult thing to work on uh, other than just, you know, basic alignment and, and a nice smooth stroke. Um, but I think overall preparing for, um, for anything, especially tournaments, and here's some good advice for every golfer, and that is, you know, invest the time to understand within, let's say, 10 yards if you're, you're an average golfer let's say a a single digit handicap let's say 10 yards and if you're a a, a 15 or 20 let's say 20 yards but just have an idea within 20 yards as to how far you're going to hit each one of your clubs and take a little notebook with you and write them down so you can refer to it when you're out playing golf because that really is the important thing and that's what I've learned from leaving golf and coming back to it that is the hardest part is dialing myself in again to where um, it really is a matter of a, a foot or two as opposed to a few yards and um, and that's that 's something that I think um, i 'll be working on along with fitness um, and my mental game um, and putting of course uh, over the next eighteen months
1: so perfect um, now I want to ask you about um, going into tournament golf here for a second and i 'm going to ask from the the viewer's perspective um, and and if you were advising a student or a friend that that is going to a tournament, no, I'm not referring to watching it on TV because obviously with editing and that you can't see everything. But if you were mm-hmm. going to take a, a friend or a, a student, let's say that uh, was going to play, uh, watch a you know PGA or LPGA, whatever doesn't matter what it is, uh, event in your area, what would you want them to observe um, if if you were going to use this as a learning opportunity? What could they learn from watching the pros? I mean, you know, certainly following pros hole to hole can be fun. But if you wanted them to would you have them hang around the greens more? uh, Or would you have them follow the full length of the hole? Or or what would you advise them if they wanted to get sort of the biggest bang for their buck as far as information and knowledge?
4: Well, you know, it's interesting. I've actually done that on two different occasions at uh, the Masters and also at the uh, Ryder Cup at the Belfry. Um, in the early 2000s, I think it was 2002, if I'm not mistaken, or perhaps three. Um, you know, it, it, it's there's so much um, that, that you can show somebody that doesn't have a lot of competitive experience and wants to learn. But what I would do if it was a friend or a, a student that I was working with is I would get them to the course um, early enough to be able to see the practice routines of the players right. that were going out that day. And I would have them watch very closely the difference between practicing um, on tournament days and practicing on non-tournament days. And really what they're trying to do with their bodies um, and their mental game in preparation for the round. And then what I would do is a mixture of what you had said. I would take them out and follow one or two groups very specifically for nine holes. And I would try to find a player in those groups that had a similar body shape and similar swing style as my student or my friend. And I would go out and I'd follow them and maybe one other group for nine holes with my friend. And we would pay real close attention to how they played the course. Right. would not focus at this stage on the greens necessarily or the tee boxes, but really just how they went out and played the golf course, the, the mistakes they may have made, um why they they chose a, a specific club um or why they had to hit a specific shot out of the rough um, and use use the first nine as a a really uh, uh, kind of an overview of uh, what it's like in competition and then on the second nine um i i would pick two holes uh, i would pick a, a par five and then i would also pick a par three and, um, I would spend the, the rest of the time, um, on, on either of those holes with, uh, again, with my student or my friend. And I would be using those two holes specifically as examples as to what dad used to call the playability of a golf course. Um, why you make the decisions you make and, you know, the reason behind it, because we, we're all curious and, and I don't know about you, Ted, but somebody tells me yeah. to do something. I usually kind of want to know why. Um, and so I find that explaining to, to people, you know, you end up having these light bulb moments where they're like, Oh gosh, I didn't think about that. And I can give you a perfect example with regards to my father, Billy Casper. It's one of my favorite stories. And it was when he was playing in the, uh, in the U S open and the year he, he, I believe he won it was his first year. He won. And he had to lay up every day on a par three, and I say had to because in his mind, that was the smart play for him to be able to par that hole every day. He knew it wasn't mm-hmm. a smart shot for him personally to try to get it on the green because it could put him in the back, and that would be an uncomfortable spot to get up and down in uh, or right. get up and down from, and so, you know, how many pros do you ever see having to lay up on a par three? I mean, that's unheard of, really, and, and, but right. he didn't think twice about it, He dissected that golf course in the best way that he knew how in order to play it at the lowest, um, you know, with the lowest numbers. And he also won that year as well. And I think that's a, a great testament to me that sometimes dialing yourself back a little bit actually is going to give you more
1: reward in the end. You know, and 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 your your dad was of course spot on with with his assessment. You know what, what's interesting, Byron, and it kind of makes me think a little bit. And, and I, I certainly, you know, there's a lot of fantastic players out on tour, but if you really look at the golfers in over time that sort of stood out above above everybody else, it wasn't because of their swing mechanics or um, uh, you know necessarily having the, the perfect stroke. It was how they handled themselves out in the golf course. You know, i.e., Nicholas, uh, you know Palmer, uh, your father, of course, uh, and, and even Trevino, uh, and certainly many, many others of that generation. The problem that I see, or have seen in, in re- maybe not so much in the last couple of years, but for a long time, was it became more of a power game, and mm-hmm. we never really saw, with the exception of Tiger, and and maybe even Phil to some degree, and, and a couple of others here and there sprinkled in, but. The majority of them, nev- you never saw anybody dominating like you did in, in, in your you know, your father's uh, era. You never really saw any any leaders come out. There was always, you know, somebody won a tournament this week and then you didn't hear of them again for, you know, what have you. But now what's happening is you're not seeing, and everybody says, well, that's because they're all better playing and that. But I think what a lot of it is, is they're not doing, you know, they're, they're not laying up on a par three when it's not going to serve them well. They're not... Uh, do you understand what I'm getting at? They're not really, um, in my way of, of thinking it here, is, is they're not really thinking their way around the course as effectively as they did, I think, in your father's generation. Would you agree with that, you think?
4: Um, yeah, I mean, I would say that, that um, I think maybe in my head I, I, I think of it like this. Um, they seem to have very aggressive swings in a lot of cases. And I don't see their ability to dial that back. In other words, you see a lot of guys nowadays, especially the young guys that are, you know, hitting a hard full 60 degree, um, you know, wedge that's been maybe open to 65 degrees, let's say. Um, And they're going to hit that 65 to 75, 80 yards maybe. um, And they're going to be aggressive with that. Whereas, you know, I think my perhaps my generation maybe, um, or maybe it's just dad rubbing off on me, you know, depending on the shot, I'm more inclined to, to maybe pull out a 52-degree or even a pitching wedge and maybe hit a little mm-hmm. three-quarter knockdown shot and have more control of the spin um, and try to take maybe maybe leak some of the speed off it a little bit, try to control it with feel. Um, so I think perhaps it's generational, um, when it comes to, to that, I think maybe just kids. So if you think back 25 years ago, Ted, I'm sure you were the same as I am yeah. perhaps a, <laughs> little, a little bit more aggressive than we are now. Um, right. Yeah, so yeah. I, you know, I think, I think probably very much part of it, but it also is, um, you know, it's, it's these, these young guys that have had coaches. Cause we, we all know of coaches, uh, these famous coaches mm-hmm. that, you know, like the, like the mentality of, you know, grab the club and hit it as hard as you can. <laughs> and, um, right. and then you combine that with equipment and balls and the long drive aspect of, uh, which has always been a, a thing that guys need. You know, we need to outdrive our friends, of course. Um, and so, you know, I think that, that it's just maybe a little bit more so with, with all of those factors thrown in. Um, but I think we were aggressive in our own way, too, you know,
1: when we were young. Sure. Would you say uh, if, if you were to take today's game with, with swing coaches and you know, mental gurus and, and every other uh, you know, trick in the bag, so sort to of speak, and I, and I know that's not a nice way to put it, but essentially that's what it is. Uh, if you were to take all of these individuals and put them back in, say, when your dad was playing, do you think that, that it would have worked well in his game Having that many, you know, uh, voices in his head, if sort of speak, how do you think no, your, your dad would handle? No, absolutely <laughs> not.
4: No, 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 heavens no. In fact, I, I'm going to refer to another story that I don't. Not a lot of people are going to remember this um, or even know this, but uh, Joe Larson, I think, was there. Um, my dad's and my partner at the uh, Billy Casper Golf Academy that we started, but we were at actually Golf Tech when I was uh, the acting manager and, and coach, um, and. um Dad was there, and I decided that I wanted to put Dad on the equipment. And, uh, you know, kind of a dream come true, uh, you know, being able to throw Billy Casper on the technical equipment at Golf Tech, never mind being his son. And it turned out right. to be really fun. But during, during that time, there was a reporter there, and he asked him that exact question, Ted, so I know the answer. Yeah. Um, and he <laughs> said, my dad looked at me and he goes, yeah. He goes, if I had all those coaches, I'd probably have won maybe once. And, um, and then he chuckled and laughed and, um, you know, somebody who won 89 times um, just stated that if he had all those coaches and people running around in his head, he might win once. And I've always taken that um, on board because, you know, I I think there's some truth to that. I think that these guys, especially guys that rose to huge levels, you know, Arnold and Jack and dad and Watson and, you know, player, and and these players that rose to these great heights, they didn't have all of these coaches, so they had to understand themselves. They had to understand their own games, uh, what they were capable of doing, Um, and so they didn't have a lot of those voices in their heads, Um, and I think it was either a sink or or swim, really.
1: Right, I um, think probably, you know, yeah, (laughs) yeah. I, I agree, and, and you're probably right. I think about the only voice that that uh, I would say that whole group probably had in their head was their spouse. That would be about the only voice I would say that they probably had, um, you know, in their head at the time was was listening to their spouse, and and which was a good thing. Um, yeah, but very no, much so. you, you know, right, right, <laughs> you know, because really that that's the only person. And I'm not even you know, married. That, that, and I'm saying that, so there you go. But you know, really, when you think about it, that generate because there there was a different type of traveling when when golf professionals in, in your dad's era, you know, when he was younger and that, you know, they they in many cases, you know, before uh, you know uh, the 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 sort of the invention of of uh, traveling by by airfare, a lot of them, uh, you know, drove drove to different uh, locations and things like that. So a lot of times, you know, the spouse would would go along with them in many cases or. Uh, depending on the circumstances, but um, you know, that was really their sounding board. Uh, I know Nicholas Mm -hmm. says that, you know, even though Barbara might be uh, handling the kids and he would go off and play, that's really who he confided in, um, you know, was, was his spouse. Um, But now, you know, they, they've got a whole panel discussion. Everybody's got their own opinion and theory and, And to me, uh, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of good that comes out of it, but it's also got to be very confusing, I I would think, for the player. Would you agree with that assessment as well?
4: I would, in fact, and I'm actually going to offer something because I was talking to my my mother um, a couple days ago, and we had done a a radio interview for the first time together um, during the Ryder Cup for um, a program, I think it was the First Tee and Pro Kids um, out of Salt Lake City, Utah, and ESPN. Um, and so what I'm going to offer to you is that you invite uh, me and, and my mom on your show at some point in 2017 to address that question um, directly. Because okay. Because there's nothing like having um, a tour wife um, with 50-plus years experience on the tour to answer it. But in a nutshell, what I'll tell you is this, and that is my dad said the same thing in his biography that I'm sure Jack said and, and uh, Arnold said as well and Gary says. And that is that you know their wives were everything. They were their cooks, their you know their sounding boards, their mental coaches, their um, you know swing coaches. Not so much, but they could certainly tell when something wasn't right. And um, and they relied on one person as opposed to ten people. And so I think there's something to be said for that.
1: Yeah, I I agree. And you know, I've you're exactly right. Um, You know, I've heard over the years. probably Nicholas most common, but uh, I've heard him mention many, many times uh, about uh, some of the great things that, that Barbara did while he was playing. And obviously uh, you know, again, Barbara uh, addressed that the family unit uh, that was, you know, her role at that time. And, and uh, obviously, you know, didn't give uh, Jack's necessarily swing advice, but, uh, but certainly I'm sure when he had uh, things that, that he was challenged with, I'm sure that, that he, she became a very effective sounding board for him, Uh, over the years Um, let me ask you another uh, question here while we've got some time and uh, you know I know that obviously your your father um, during tournaments where he might either been in the lead or close to the lead uh, and maybe things didn't pan out the way he did how did he handle a loss when he didn't at the Hmm. end of the day when the tournament was was over and he uh, you know just didn't come through and, and win that tournament uh, how did he handle that loss? What did he do um, to to sort of reconcile with it, especially if he was close to, to to getting the prize? What did he do to sort of handle that loss and and what could maybe an or amateur golfers take away from that
4: um, you know i um i i guess i i don't know the answer to that as as much as um I would if I was a little older because you know he had won uh, all of his majors um on the regular tour um, before I was even born. And um, even though he did win a couple of the senior tour um, when I was out there actually with him um, on the tour. But, um, you know, the, the, I think he was like just anybody else in, in a competitive situation. I, I specifically remember being at Trial in Jamaica for a, um, a fun event they used to have. And I was catting for dad at the time. And it was a team event with the LPGA and the, senior PGA playing, I think it was the top ten from each of the tours paired together. And um we had tied for uh for the lead. In fact we had tied um uh and went into a playoff with a couple other uh of of the teams. I think there was two other teams um and if I remember correctly um the LPGA uh player uh hit it out of bounds on the right and my dad got up and uh basically duck hooked it into a, into the pond on the left and in a, in a real sense, knocked themselves out in the first hole. And I remember very specifically, cause that was for a big paycheck. You know, that was back in the, the mid to late eighties where, you know, and it was a half a million dollar paycheck, which, you know, that's right. a lot of money even nowadays, but back then that was staggering. And, sure. um, and I, I remember him just, the same old same old just you had to leave him alone he had to mentally process what he did learn anything from it that he could and then release it and you know dad was always really good at at doing that um i think some of my siblings might argue that point but the reason i say that he was really good at doing that (laughs) was because um he um he did it he was able to do it and and even though there was a time frame you know whether it be two hours after the round or um, 10 hours after the round, um, he always dealt with it, came back to reality and got on with things. And um, and again, sometimes that happens faster than than others. And I think that that's probably the sign of great champions or, is that even though things do get them down, because things get all of us down, uh, I don't think sure. they allow it to, to stay with them very long. I think they have a wonderful ability to release that to the universe or whatever their belief is. And then just get on with the business at hand
1: yeah you I, I agree with that. I think you have to sort of decompress from the moment, obviously you know uh, it's funny you you know you mentioned that today uh when I was uh, out driving around and uh, I was uh, at a at a golf course not too far from where I live, and um I wasn't playing, but I was going through the neighborhood there, and I came up uh, alongside as I was getting ready to turn back on the highway, uh hole number ten. And uh, there was a gentleman that was, uh, was teeing off, so as I'm waiting for traffic to, to go by, I'm sort of watching him tee off. And I didn't actually, just because there were a couple of trees there, I didn't actually get to see, you know, specifically what happened. To the ball. But I remember as soon as he swung through, he obviously knew whatever it was that happened to him just was not good. And the next thing you know, the club was thumping on the ground, and, you know, <laughs> and he'd thrown it about 10 feet, in, you know, in front of him. And you could tell he was not a happy camper. So as I, you know, progressed down the road, I looked, you know, because I was driving along the tenth hole, I looked over to see if I could see his ball, and of course I couldn't. So I don't know whether he sliced it, hooked it, or what he did, but it was interesting to see his immediate reaction uh, to a bad shot. And mm-hmm. the point I want, you know, the point I want to get out to the folks there is, you're going to have some bad shots up there, and and certainly sometimes your initial reaction might be to thump that club down. But as you just pointed out with your father, you know, there's sort of a grieving period, if you will, and then you have to process it, learn from it, but move on. And I think a lot of amateurs and even some pros have difficulty doing that, Um, you know, being able to move on. And and especially our amateurs, you'll see them maybe play two or three bad holes uh, strung together and they're not able to let it go. And they they take it, they drag it along with them like dead weight through the rest of their round. How do you help somebody like that? What do you do to, to help them sort of to move on to, to not drag that with them throughout their rounds?
4: You know, it's something that I've experienced myself. And so because I've experienced it myself, um, I'm an advocate for the importance of it. Um, you know, it, it's sometimes in this life that we, we lead um, and live, it, it really is sometimes really hard for us to let things go. And, um, and that's just not, you know, not just on the golf course, that's just in life in general. And I think if you can learn, learn to do that on the golf course, um, it's going to help you in the rest of your life. It certainly has me. Um, But I would say two things. The first is it's a game and you have to, regardless of, of what game you're playing and to what level you're playing that game, you have to make sure that that reality stays the same. That it is a game. It's something that that you are perhaps even doing as a living or a profession. But it still is a game, something to be mastered. And you know, Ben Hogan, one of my heroes, my, one of my well, I think my father's only hero. Um, you know, used to make the comment that you know he might have five or six good shots in a round of golf. Um, you know, and this comes from one of the the, the best swingers of of the club um in the history of the game and he he says he may have hit five or six shots and so again it's all relative you know what's a good shot to you is a good shot to you hitting it a foot from the hole or is a good shot to you getting it on the green and once you define that and to and and define that i think realistic you know short-term or medium-term goal then it's just a matter of realizing that you're not going to hit every shot exactly the way that you want. And so that, you know, there's a margin of error. You, you, you learn to deal with it. And the good players can do that shot by shot. Um, the, the very, very decent players can do that every two or three holes. The players that have as much talent as anybody else, but you never see do anything great on the tour, are the players that have never been able to conquer that inside their own head. And so again, yeah. you know, if you, you can forget about your shot um, and go on to the next shot with a clear head, then that's great. Some people can't do that. And some, some people can only do that on a whole, whole by whole basis. Um, and I think it comes down to your own temperament and, and how willing you are to, to deal with, you know, learning about
1: yourself. Yeah. And I, th- and I think just to add to that, Byron, I think one of the things that a lot of golfers uh, and, and again, I'm referring to obviously our higher handicap golfers out there is I think they've forgotten how to have how to have fun out on the golf course. They've, they've become too serious. Mm-hmm. You know, they um, you know, they're trying to to achieve that perfect swing. You know, they've been and I and I hate to this is would be one of the criticisms I would have of the industry as a whole is there's been a lot of obviously heavy marketing that over the years and, and trying to help people get, you know, sort of sort of the perfect swing uh, and and having the right equipment, and I think what's happened is it, it's it's had in some cases, not every case, but a lot of cases, it's had a negative effect where it, it's created a a message, if you will, out there that I I just I just can't do that. I just can't get mm-hmm. to that level. I'm never going to be. And it's created a level of frustration with a lot of golfers out there because it's become too complicated. It's just too hard. We were talking about this earlier in the program with the the guys in the panel. And I talked about, you know, I would like to see more executive courses uh, again. I mean, there's certainly some great ones around the country. I'm sure you have uh, many out there in California. But, you know, this was a great learning place in my mind, was on some of these executive courses, for especially the beginning golfers, it wasn't as intimidating, uh, it was easier, you know, you, you dealt with basically par threes in most cases, sometimes you might have some very short par fours, but usually it was par threes, of course, in most of your executive courses, and, you know, people had a sense of, of feeling like they could accomplish something, whereas you know, you get out to a lot of these courses now, Byron, where it's 7,000 plus yards, and even if you play the four tees, it's still difficult for a lot of uh, amateur golfers out there, and I think that they've just, you know, it, it it adds to, hey, I'm just not having fun anymore. And mm-hmm. that's something I think that we, we really need to bring back to the game. If they want to grow the game, that's the, the best way to do it. Let's have fun.
4: Well, I think let's have fun. And, you know, I think there's there's a number of things that we can do to grow the game and to make it enjoyable again and to make make it time efficient. I mean, I really do. Like, you know, you've heard me say this before, but I would love for the USGA to look at, nine holes being um, not just applicable for your handicap, but, you know, that they have a whole nine hole program so that corporations and other groups can start having nine hole golf days. Um, You know, having, you know, been in the management business for a couple years now, as well as teaching, um, as you know, I manage golf courses and and other properties for Pacific Hospitality Group here in San Diego. And having kind of learned the ins and outs of, of, of that business as well. You know, it's, it really is getting people to enjoy something that normally takes, you know, five, six hours. If you have a corporate golf day or a tournament day um, and you have a a shotgun start at 10 in the morning, that is wiping your entire day out. So you have to have motivation to play in that. And if you have a corporate day that's nine holes and you have a shotgun start at 930 in the morning and then lunch and prize giving, that benefits everybody. It benefits the golf course because they can have two tournaments a day. It benefits the company and corporations because they're only paying and hosting for half a day, which means that they're going to get a lot more patrons because people don't have to change their whole schedules around. And so you know, I think right. that there's a lot of things that that we can do as an industry. um I wish more people were talking about it, Ted. I really do because um yeah. it it makes me sad to see golfers leaving the sport. It makes me sad to see golfers handicaps not getting lower um, It makes me sad to see golf courses being being um you know developed into other other industries or homes um you know and right. i think the executive course uh, idea is something that would again allow people to take their kids and friends and beginning golfers without any any intimidation whatsoever just fun and we need to get back to that stage for as an industry
1: yeah, I, I agree. And, and and the reason why I I wanted to focus a little bit on the executive so, uh, course uh, idea is is just that uh, I think there needs to be more of them. There's a lot of people that would love to get out there, but uh, again, there's a cost factor. You know, I'll give you a good example. There's uh, the course I was talking about earlier. I'm, I'm not going to give out the specific name, but um, you know, they've just sold off two of their holes, hole number one, and I think hole number ten, uh, to to a large uh, company in the area that's going to then flip it into a uh, you know uh, some strip malls right out in front of the golf course, um, which is unfortunate because it's, it's got some great views of the road, but now it's going to have a, you know, a plaza there on each side. Um, But, you know, it's under new ownership and, you know, so there's a lot of other factors Mm -hmm, involved, mm -hmm. but, you know, one of the things that they're doing is, and again, this is here in Florida, is they're, they're getting away from some of the, uh, the seasonally, what I call seasonal discount golf for a lot of your snowbirds that come down here because the members are, are you know, grumbling they can't get on the golf course. And I, I was there the other day on, on Sunday, uh, actually giving a lesson, and somebody said to me uh, that works there that you know that this is some of the changes that are happening, and I can just see down the road that they're going to phase all of these, these people that have come down here for, for years and years and years, and, and they're not saying that they can't play golf, but they're not going to give them a, you know, a better rate. They're going to pay the full rate, and they're using it as a deterrent to get people away um, for, uh, you know, access for the members. But what I I see happening down the road, and I'm sure you can attest to this, and it's certainly not in every case, but memberships are down a lot of courses. And I think if they start taking that approach, uh, eventually their memberships are going to get down to such a low number. But in the meantime, they've sort of ticked everybody off uh, off the golf course uh, by not being flexible and i see that maybe I'm wrong, but I see that as um not a good thing long term uh oh, think i about i that. couldn't-
4: i couldn't agree more i could not agree more i think that um i think one of the reasons why we're in trouble really as an industry as well is that we're not thinking far enough in advance um yeah and um you know for so for you know a good example is you know um and I'll pick on Top Golf here for a second, even though I love Top Golf, yeah. I think they're awesome, and there's right. lots of groups that are like Top Golf. There's other groups doing similar things all over the country. Um, but I would question whether or not that's good for golf because that's not helping people get on golf courses. And um, right. and I and I think that that that's really what what we need to do is get people on golf courses. Um, and I hope that Top Golf. Um, leads people into golf courses more. But after managing two golf courses for almost 20 months now, um, I can tell you that, yeah, the, the industry is getting more difficult because we're not appealing to the younger golfers that we should have been all, all along. And, right. um, and you know, this next generation of, of guys and girls in their thirties and and in their twenties and then the generation when they're young twenties and, and teens Um, what incentive do they have to go and play golf? We don't talk about it in business the same way it used to. In other words, deals aren't being done the the same way they used to be done on the golf course. We're not offering this new, you know, demographic anything, um, that really is unique and targeted to them. We're just offering the same old, same old, same old country club, lifestyle brunch on Sunday, you know, member guests and, um, and corporate events. Um, we're going to have to do a lot in order to, uh, to almost take it back a couple of steps and rethink the way that we want to market the game of golf to the the, the younger generations.
1: Right. And I, and I agree. And I think one of the things, you know, that particular generation gap, as you said, that twenties and 30 and somethings, um, there's going to be, there's no doubt. There's a pocket right now in the industry and the only ones in the, that age group that is actually, Um, you know, out there and enjoying golf are are those that grew up in a competitive environment. In other words, their family, uh, their parents got them into golf at an early age as juniors. And of course, they've gone up the ranks and not necessarily they're playing on tour, but they maybe played, uh, some of them maybe played uh, collegiate golf. Uh, Others, you know, continued uh, on a tour life or what have you. Um, But that generation just didn't have the same access to golf um, because it wasn't really being targeted that way. And well, exactly, think, Abs- absolutely right. And in I think
4: fact, I'll tell you, a, a,
2: right. You know,
1: a, a quick, quick. I think I lost you, Byron. I don't know if you can still hear me or not, but uh, I'm not sure if we uh, we lost you on the call or not, but or maybe, yeah, yeah, we did. Um, Byron, I'm sure you can hear me, so obviously, I'll wait for you to call back in and let you finish that thought, but uh. You know, obviously, we have to make some uh, some adjustments as far as how we uh, uh, you know we market this game, and I think that's really the point that that Byron was uh, getting ready to to make, and here he is. Let me bring him back on. You you left yeah, me midstream of your thought. Go ahead. Go ahead.
4: Sorry, sorry about that, Ted. I, um, I I'm not sure. I I really actually don't even know what happened, but it, I wasn't even touching the phone. But um, but I apologize about that.
1: Um, I, I'm yeah, not sure no how how
4: much you heard. None.
1: <laughs> so go ahead.
4: <laughs> what was the last thing we were talking about then?
1: Uh, we were I talking went on for a, about for a minute or two. Yeah, no. Uh, it was basically about uh, you know that pocket of twenties and thirty somethings not um, really being marketed. And you were about to give us an example. Oh yeah, of, of yeah, yeah. There. So
4: that's right. I was so I was playing in a tournament at Delmar Country Club, and I um, I was playing very well that day and hit a, hit an amazing drive a little bit of help with the uh, downhill and uh, downwind. and ended up hitting, uh, I believe it was about 327 or 329 um, yards, which quite frankly at sea level for an old man, I will take that all day long.
0: And oh, yeah. um,
4: <laughs> I ended up losing, ended up coming in second um, and for the long drive. And it was to a 26-year-old kid who we were sitting at the same table at at the dinner that evening. And, you know, he asked me why I was so happy. And I said, you know, I said, I never see kids your age playing in these events. And I said, and if, I, I, if I'm if i going to lose to somebody, don't mind losing to somebody 20 years younger than me um, because this gives me hope in, in, in this next yep. generation that actually cares about the game. I really, really believe it's that important, Ted. And, um, and again, I wish that more people were talking about it because this is what we need to talk about as an industry. We need to figure out, the best way to keep people excited and passionate about this wonderful game
1: yeah I, I agree and and I think uh, I think one of the and, and this is just my own observation but I think one of the problems that the industry has had in you know they're going after the junior golfers uh, and, and junior uh, juniors out there which is certainly a good thing we want to expose people early uh, to the to the game but I think in the back of their mind and thinking okay, let's funnel them into uh, junior programs, and let's funnel them into, uh, you know, uh, the next step uh, again, collegiate golf. Or so, so they're thinking from a, from a tourist standpoint, as opposed to, let's just go out there and have fun. And I think really the only way that we're going to get sort of these next generations is to really target, um, what I consider family golf. In other words, let's get the families involved because that generation mm-hmm. now coming up that are, that are just married and, you know, got young kids, um, they would love to do something as a family and they're doing other activities. The problem with golf is it's so expensive that a family just can't do it together. So they're just not interested. Um, you know, I can grab a tennis racket for $15 and a, a, a sleeve of tennis balls for maybe another five or $6. And, you know, even if I have to get the whole family for under a hundred dollars, I can you know get everybody up and we can go to the tennis court, but a golf, mm-hmm. uh, a golf outing for a family, it's not going to happen that cheap. And it's a harder sport to learn. So, I think that's what the what the uh, the PGA of America and the the USGA and all of these different bodies within the um, and even the PGA Tour and that need to start focusing at the family uh, level and getting them interested as a, as a group um, because then they'll, when they travel and do things together that's one of the activities they're going to be interested in doing but it's got to be affordable number one. And it's got to be something that they can do and have fun at and and make it interesting and not just, you know, uh, and I think as the kids develop uh, and get out there playing with it, just like (laughs) you did with your father, when you were a youngster, um, you know, many of them are going to grapple to to golf, um, you know, in their later years, whether it be for business or just fun. And that's why a lot of them are doing it now because they're not exposed to it. Yeah, I I
4: totally agree. I think, I think, I think that that's, you know, we, we've actually instituted or I instituted at our golf courses um, a, a program, and we've test marketed it a little, a little bit and seen success with it. And we'll, we'll eventually grow it a lot further. But, um, but I've called it Billy Casper's Kids on Course because, um, you know, kids were very important to my father, um, and they're important to me, um, being a grandfather now myself. And, um, right. and I want to see kids on the course. And so at, at both Salt Creek Golf Club as well as Warner Springs Golf Club, we've instituted this program, Billy Casper's Kids on Course, where every, every child 14 and under has the um, ability to get a free rental set and play uh, uh, a free round of nine holes with a, uh, an adult. Um, and um, we're doing that because we want the adults to be mentoring the kids we also sure. want them to have these small, short, short parts of, you know, small, small amounts of time fun. And we think that nine holes is a great uh, template to start with. And um, yep. and so everybody, again, wins. The golf courses win because they're getting a paying adult. The, the adult wins because they get to introduce, you know, their favorite grandson or son or daughter, um, nephew, what have you um, to the game of golf. And again, it's driving a new, Group of people into into this sport and i I agree with a lot of what people are thinking, but I think if we start younger um, and we start with families like you're saying, um, then you know we've got a jump start on twenty five years from now when we we do need you know a whole new set of golfers, and we can avoid some of the mistakes I think we've made with this this next generation coming up
1: yeah and i and i and and I don't want to sound you know as they used to refer to as a Debbie Downer, and say that, uh, apologize to any Debbies that might be listening to the program. But um, you know, I don't want to say that you know the 20s and 30s something that we should just sort of wipe it clean and say forget about them. I think there's still a way that we can go after them, but I think that we have to find a way to appeal to their sense. I mean, everybody said, well, let's just get very technical and let's get all the technology out there because that's what they're all into, or social media, and that's great. There's a lot of great ways of of uh, you know getting to their their attention. But um, there's a lot of youngsters that, that I call youngsters in that age group, the 20s and 30s, that probably would enjoy playing golf, but number one, they haven't been exposed to it at an earlier age, so they're not that familiar with it. And the only thing that they see is what they see on TV or social media, and that is, number one, uh, they see guys like, like Rory and Tiger and all these others that are multimillionaires, and they say, well, this is a rich man's sport. So that's a deterrent right there. Number two, they see it's not an easy sport because these guys, geez, if Tiger's got, you know, 15 people, like we talked about earlier, surrounding him, uh, you know, I-, I can't afford that. So they, in their mind, they think that that's what they've got to do. The other thing that's really hurt the golf industry, which has been good in some ways, is the fact that we've got so much free information coming over social media that it's making hard for the golf industry mm-hmm. to come out and say, okay, well, I, I want to get you in here, uh, but I'm going to charge you $50 or $100 or whatever it is. Uh, the kid just has to go to Google and, and look up golf instruction or what have you, and they get all kinds of free stuff. Some of it's good, some of it's not. And so we've kind of created a, a monster and a, little, and a little bit of a, uh, you know, uh, which has been a deterrent. Uh, you know, and that's why yeah. you're not coming up to the golf course and to the lesson tee.
4: Well, it's kind of that old saying, you know, too many chefs in the kitchen.
1: Um,
4: yeah. <laughs> I, um, I, you know, I, I have a policy. I, I do two things with my students that set me apart to the Norm, um, which I'm very proud of, and I'll continue to always do them and include them in the academy, um, the uh, Billy Casper Golf Academy, just to clarify what your introduction earlier today, um, that is still based in southern Utah, and, um, okay. and I'm still retaining ownership in that. The San Diego version of that is uh, going to be called the, or it is called the Billy Casper Golf School, um, San Diego, and um, and so um, we're really excited about that. but. The things that are really important that I think are my small way of giving back are really twofold. The first is that I video everything so that they have a, uh, an, the ability to see where they started at and where they finished. In yep. other words, um, how, how, you know, how they were swinging the club when it wasn't working as opposed to how they're swinging the club now when it is. And I, I make a record of that because I want them to be able to, to go and look at that on their phone um, or tablet anytime they have, they have the chance or need to in order to get a little refresher course. The second thing I do is, you know, I don't ever want to give anybody the same lesson twice. And so I give them all of, all of the tools in that particular lesson, whatever it is we're working on, hands or turn or weight shift or what have you, um, and I give them the tools so that they really shouldn't have to have that same lesson twice. They should have the ability to go over the information that we we worked on, look at the videos, look at my notes, and be able to fix what they were doing wrong, and um, right. and I've seen you know a lot of success with that because one it helps people enjoy the game a little bit more. Um, two, um, it doesn't make me feel like I'm trying to get one student to pay the mortgage because you know unfortunately right. that's that's the mentality that a lot of a lot of pros have is you know they want to make a ton of money off of one student when in reality if we're doing our jobs correctly and we're doing a good job um, we should have a 1,000 students waiting in line, and that's, that's, in my opinion anyway, that's how I want to make my income, from helping a 1,000 people rather than helping 10 people for the rest of their lives. Um, and I right. think, again, that's just, you know, again, personal opinion, but that's something that I like to do through
1: um, our
4: golf academies and golf schools because I really <laughs> do believe that it's a mixture of giving back a little bit, understanding a way to make a good income and a good living as a golf pro but at the same time, not just giving back in charities, but giving back to each individual student that you work with.
1: Right. I I agree wholeheartedly. Um, Well, Byron, unfortunately, we're out of time and literally just have a a moment left, so I want to take this opportunity to thank you uh, for being part of my show this year and and help me close out uh, a a successful 2016. And uh, I'm definitely going to take you up on your offer to have you and and, uh, your mother... uh, uh, honor us uh, on the show and we'll we'll talk about that of course uh, at a later point and and uh, have you guys come on in the new year and and have her answer that question that i asked earlier uh, but i also want to have you back on early we didn't get a chance and unfortunately I, I don't have the time to do it today but um early in the new year i'll have you back on and i want to talk about of course uh coming up here in just a few months is uh, your dad's tournament in san diego so we'll talk about that uh give the dates and and those that uh, maybe want to participate or or want to uh be involved in some way can do that so um on that note byron have a great holiday season and i'll certainly be in touch with you before the year rounds out and uh i want to thank you uh for all uh your great hard work and and your contributions to the show
4: well you know thank you ted and i also want to thank you for not only your contributions to your wonderful golf show um but uh speaking on behalf of the people that listen to you and also care about you i i'm grateful that there are people like you in the industry that are talking about things that need to be talked about because I think, uh, knowledge is power and the more of us that continue to talk and, and open up new creative ideas and ways to help the sport that we love, um, the better. So, um, so I applaud you for your efforts in that. And, uh, and again, it, it was really my pleasure to be involved with your show this year.
1: All right. Well, I'm definitely going to have you back, uh, many times next year. We've got some things that you and I are going to talk about and, and uh, bring to the table in, in 2017. So uh, again, thank you very much and have a great holiday season with your family and, and friends. And, and uh, I look forward to you joining me again in 2017.
4: Great. Thanks Ted. Happy holidays to you and to everybody listening. Take care.
1: All right. Yeah. Thanks Byron. All right. Good night. All right. I want to uh, once again, thank my very special guest, uh, Byron Casper. He's the uh, uh, director of golf at the uh, Casper golf Academy. And uh, just a, a great, uh, a great gentleman, and, and um, obviously uh, is uh, a chip off the old block, as they say. Of course, uh, son of uh, legendary Billy Casper, who uh, also had been on the show a few years back, and unfortunately is no longer with us, but uh, certainly has left a, a tremendous legacy behind, and, and uh, uh, certainly an inspiration for all those uh, new golfers coming out there uh, to learn from. So. Um, again, thank you, Byron, for, for coming on the show. And I see that we're uh, uh, winding down very quickly here. So, again, I also want to thank uh, my Coach's Corner panel, uh, John Hughes and Pete Buchanan, for, for joining me earlier this evening on the, on the final Coach's Corner of uh, 2016. Uh, and on behalf of uh, those two, uh, thanks for, for tuning in each and every week and, uh, and participating in the Coach's Corner panel. Uh, to all of the other uh, panelists over the year, uh, we'll be coming out with a schedule here in just a few short weeks uh, in preparation for next year and got some new and exciting things that uh, I'm going to be doing with the show. Um, but uh, on a final note, I want to thank uh, all of the uh, supporters and sponsors of the program, Mr. Jonathan Laird from South Coast Golf Guide. Uh, go to southcoastgolfguide.com and check out uh, a great publication that Jonathan has been pumping out there for over 20 years and uh, certainly has been a follower and supporter of the show. Meredith Kirk, of course, from Meredith Kirk Golf. Uh, Nikki and Tiffany Litherland, uh, thank you for helping spread the word. Mr. Bernie Pinder from Ontic Golf, uh, thank you as well for for, uh, tuning in and and sharing your thoughts uh, over the years uh, on the program. Uh, Sean Kelly, uh, owner of linkedgolfers.com. And, of course, Mr. Peter Doyle from Doyle uh, Golf Solutions over in Ireland. Thank you, Peter, for all of your continued support. Uh, but particularly, I want to take this opportunity to thank all of my listeners worldwide for faithfully tuning into Golf Talk Live each and every week. And uh, as I've said so many times, I uh, have a great amount of pleasure and enjoyment of having a number of tally, t- highly talented uh, coaches, teacher professionals, authors, and entrepreneurs stop by and it is truly through their participation guest appearances that have helped to make Golf Talk Live uh, a first-class show. Um, So once again, on behalf of my guests this evening and myself, I want everybody to have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, and uh, Golf Talk Live will be returning uh, middle of January. I don't have the date in front of me, but it'll be actually just before the PGA Merchandising Show, which is the third week, Uh, I think the 24th to the 27th, I believe, uh, is the show in that range. And uh, I'll be uh, coming back live uh, on air uh, the week before. So it'll be somewhere around, I think, the 15th, if I'm not mistaken, 15th to 18th in that range, uh, whatever that Thursday is uh, before the PGA Merchandising Show in January. Um, But on that note, again, thank you very much. And next week on Tuesday, uh, which is December 13th, Cindy Miller and I, of course, uh, co-host the um, Women of Golf show every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on the blog talk radio, uh, dot com network. That will be the final show for the women of golf next uh, week uh, for 2016. And we'll be starting up uh, that same week in January as I do golf talk live. So make sure you tune back in and lots of great things that we're going to be doing. Lots of great guests coming up in the new year. Um, so again, thank you everybody uh, for all of your, your participation in the program. And thank you particularly to the listeners for tuning in and all of your continued support uh, through social media and, and elsewhere. Uh, Have a very Merry Christmas. Happy holidays, everybody. Happy New Year and God bless. Thank you, everybody.